0: Welcome to the. This is Pastor Jordan, and I am coming to you straight from our facilities, right in the center of Hebron, from our church building, for our very first episode. Uh, I hope that you guys are excited at the prospect of this new podcast that we're launching out today. Uh, our first episode is really going to be about why do we want to make a podcast, and what are we reading in the Bible? So if this is your first time being exposed to our church, or maybe first time tuning in to some of our content outside of Sunday mornings, we want you to know that our purpose is to make disciples who glorify God. That is why we exist. Uh, In an effort to be faithful to that mission, this podcast is being put together so that we can continue conversations from what we're learning on Sunday mornings into Monday through Friday into your car, into your house, into your phone, into every area of your life so that you may grow in Christ, mature in him, and make more disciples who will follow him. Uh, So I hope that this podcast is an encouragement to you. Uh, I hope that it's also going to be something in which maybe some of the questions that you've got as you are doing your Bible reading are answered. And uh, ultimately, we want to encourage you to go ahead and share this with your friends, with family, to talk about it, dialogue about it on Sundays or whenever you get to a chance to talk to other people within our church. So that's kind of some of the reason why behind the podcast. Now I just want to talk to you a little bit about the, the content of our podcast. This podcast is going to be full of interviews with other church members, uh, people within our church, people outside of our church, uh, who are invested in the growth and health of Hebron Church of Hope. It's going to be a podcast that's going to feature uh, some episodes that are going to be based on what we're reading in our Bible reading plan together, uh, some more follow-up from sermons, and some even some dialogue and discussion over different areas of theology and practice uh, for the Christian life that are coming from people within our church body. This This podcast, really, while all of the content is focused on The truth of the Bible, the message of the Bible, and its practice within our church is exactly that. Like I just said in the end of that sentence right there, focused in on how our church is living out the gospel for the glory of God. Uh, So, I hope that you will stay tuned. I hope that it will be an encouragement for you. And today, our topic of discussion is going to be around the first month of our Bible reading plan. We are almost through with our first month, we are doing the Ligonier uh, Table Talk Bible Reading Plan. And we're going to read through the entirety of the Bible together this year at Hebrew Church of Hope. And uh, we have been studying a lot of different things so far in the first few weeks of this reading plan. Um, so there have been a f- number of questions that have come in through our church communication app, which is called Slack. Uh, I've gotten personal text messages and different... Uh, questions sent to me in a variety of ways, and so my hope is to try to answer as many of those as possible. I don't know if I'm going to get to everything within a 20-minute podcast. Um, Maybe it will be a little bit longer. (laughs) We'll see, Um, but nonetheless, uh, our effort is to look at what we've been reading in the Scripture together and to tackle some of the questions that have been uh, proposed uh, through, through our reading. So, Right now, as we are going through this app uh, and reading the Bible together, we are focusing in on the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning part of Matthew, and even some within the first few chapters of Exodus. So first of all, let's just start right at the beginning, the early parts of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, the early pages, even Genesis 1 through 11, the beginning of the Bible plays such a significant role for us as Christians as we continue to think about what Scripture is and how to read Scripture in its entirety um, together. So creation in the accounts of Genesis 1 through 11 are extremely vital to us in our Bible reading. Uh, Interesting enough, as I was looking through our discussions and seeing some of the people within our church talking, I was actually kind of surprised that nobody asked the question, how old is the earth? <laughs> right. So we get right into Genesis 1 and 2. We have God giving us an account through the writing of Moses of how the world was created. First and foremost, we must recognize that Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created. Okay. So he, God is the creator of the universe. He has created the world. He has created everything within it. He has done so by speaking it into existence. Uh, Genesis one one tells us, uh, you hear my Bible ruffling in the background, sorry about that, but it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from the account of Genesis 1, what we're going to see is that over the next six days, God is creating things. Uh, specifically, first on the first day, he creates uh, light and light and darkness. He says, let there be light, and there was light, and then uh, the light and the darkness are separated, and the light was called day, and the darkness was called night. On the second day, God creates the waters uh, uh, that—there's an expanse of water separating the water from the ground and the water from the sky, uh, evening and morning the second day. On the third day, God created the land— And it says that he created the dry land and the gathering water he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. So on the third day, he creates the land and vegetation for us. On the fourth day, it tells us that uh, God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as a signs for the seasons and for days and for years. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. So He made two lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night. That is the sun and the moon, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. Evening and morning came the fourth day. Then on the fifth day, we start to see God create creatures. So it says in verse 20, God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created large sea creatures and every kind of living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. And he blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. And he filled the waters of the sea and the birds filled and multiplied on the earth. So the fifth day, we see the creation of creatures on the earth and in the sea. And then on the sixth day, uh, there were more creatures that were created, living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawled, wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And then it shows us God's ultimate work in creation in verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to likeness, our likeness, They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The greatest work of God in creation is the creation of man. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. This is the Imago Dei, that we represent the picture of God's fullness. Now, within that, it says that he created them in the image or him in the image of God he created them male and female so god has created humans to represent him and he has created us in one of two ways either to be male or to be female and then in that we are, have been called just like the creatures of the, the earth and the, and the sea in verse 28 god says to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish rule over the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Of all the things that God created, man is in his image, and he is given a role to have dominion over the earth and to continue to multiply and fill it. So in Genesis one and two we see God's work within creation, and on the seventh day we know that God rested from his creation after he had seen everything that was good. But the ultimate question that comes out of this for many people when they read the Bible is what does day mean? Now, there are tons of Christians throughout history who have had differing opinions on the created order of the world. Some uh, say that the earth is old. Some say that it's young. uh, And there are many different um, credible ideas in between. Now, within this, I think what's essential for us as Christians is that we must first and foremost recognize that God creates. Any idea of the formation of the earth that denies God as its creator is not a idea that Christians can biblically embrace. So things like theistic evolution, though they try to give credit to God for being the one who implements evolution and then uses that process in order to bring about his creation, I don't think that that's a a consistent biblical worldview. It doesn't give the ultimate credit to God. In in fact, what it does is it, it gives us a fatalistic view of God, one in which he basically winds up the world and creates something and then just leaves it to its being. But what Genesis 1 and 2 shows us is that God is intimately involved in his creation. And as he's intimately involved in his creation, he is personally uh, invested in its good working order. And in fact, every time we see the day end, the period of time end here, it says to us that God saw what he had done on that day and he called it good, or as the Hebrew would say, very good, that it was whole, that it was complete, that it was as he intended it to be. So creation must submit itself to the fact that God is the one who is the creator. Anything that denies that falls short of what we can call a biblical worldview. Now, with that, uh, again, there are various positions, old earth, young earth. Um, there, uh, within those positions, some people use what they call the the days here. They, they've translated that to be what is known as the day age theory, so that each day represents a period of time within history. Um, again, I think that these may be real Christians who are Uh, making a genuine effort to be faithful to God, but that's not at least where I come to the conclusion. My personal position on the age of the earth is that God created the earth. Uh, I believe that creation is young in the sense that it's probably anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000 years old and that he created it in a way that there is maturity within the world. Okay, so um, some people may find that foolish, others may not. Nonetheless, at least that's my personal position. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we all have to come to some sort of agreement that God is the creator of the universe. And how old the earth is, uh, while we, in the most simplistic reading, can say day means day— Uh, We can affirm that. We can hold on to that. We can also see that there are other scholars, other people who have battled on how exactly old the earth is and the age of the earth based on this word of day, what was represented to be because Moses wasn't there, what that was, uh, and I think that those are good conversations. So land on this, friends. (laughs) Land on the fact that God has created the world And that in his creating work, he's created it exactly how he is supposed to be and how it is supposed to be. So that was uh, the first idea of what we encountered within these early chapters of Genesis. The main conversation that came out of our uh, Bible discussion together was really around the the circumstances of the fall. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to go ahead and read for us from Genesis chapter 3 where we see the second part of the Bible's narrative, that is, the fall and how humans rebel against God, and that leads into a giant conflict that is going to play its way out in the rest of Scripture. So in Genesis 3, 1, it says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So in the the heat of this giant conflict, we see the serpent arise to the story, and he questions what God has said to Adam and Eve. And first, we notice that the this direct conversation is between uh, the serpent and Eve, but verse 6 highlights for us the fact that Adam was present. Now, there have been a couple of conversations like, why didn't Adam speak up? Why didn't he uh, say something to Eve in this uh, circumstance? Why didn't he stick up for God? What was going on here? What we do know for certain is that he's close enough to be in proximity of the conversation and that he does participate with Eve in eating in the fruit. So while he may be a passive participant, he's at least active in the rebellion that, that is the disobedience of God's commands. So no, let's just talk first about how uh, the serpent tempts Eve to disobey God. So she says, uh, he says to her in um, verse 1, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And her response is really important to us, because what she says in verse 2 is a distortion of what God had actually given as a command in the first place. So in verse 2, she says, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. And if we actually look back into Genesis chapter 2, and we see this interaction between God, the man, and the woman— In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So, Eve says to the serpent that they must not eat it or touch it, or they will die. And what God actually said back in Genesis 2 was that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day they would certainly die. So, um, first, we recognize that Eve is exaggerating what God has said. Right? So, God did not give them the command that they were not allowed to eat of it or or touch it. He said, you must not eat of it. Um, And the second part of this is that then Satan, or the serpent then goes on to deny what God has said. In verse 4, you won't die. In fact, he then goes on to uh, to suppose what God is saying. In verse 5, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him. So the greatest threat that the serpent sees for God in this, uh, this opportunity is that Adam and Eve would be like him. And he thinks, well, God just can't have that. What's really interesting about that is when you think of it, notice how this is also a distortion of what God has done in his creative work, right? In Genesis 1, 27 and 26 particularly, it says, let us make man in our image. God's desire in creating mankind, creating men and women, was to create them in his image to represent him, to carry out his work in the created world that he has made. But what the serpent is saying in Genesis 3 is, God doesn't want you to be like him. But at the root of their identity is the likeness of God within them, the image of God that they represent. Now, God cannot be replaced by humans, right? We cannot uh, dethrone him. Uh, That would be idolatrous. That would not be uh, fruitful. Uh, But nonetheless, what we can see is at least that God in creating us, in his image, is doing something that is what he declares to be good. So the serpent is denying uh, what God's desires are in creating mankind, creating men and women in his image, and he's also denying uh, the value of the image of God within them. So the woman takes the fruit, she eats of it, and it says that she gave some to her husband. I think the Christian Standard Bible is helpful here. Uh, It says that he was with her, right? So again, we're at least recognizing that Adam is... Within the situation, he uh, may not be in the direct conversation, but he is directly involved in the rebellion uh, that takes place in actually eating of the fruit. I just took a look at the English Standard Version. Uh, It says there in verse 6, So when the woman saw that this tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So at least in most of the English translations that we're going to see, there is a affirmation that Adam is with Eve in this particular circumstance. Now from this rebellion, then we see the consequences of sin. In verse 8, God comes into the garden. He's going to commune with Adam and Eve. And while he's there, uh, he calls out to Adam and Eve, but they're not there. And Adam responds by saying, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then the Lord God responds in verse 11 by saying, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is Adam's first opportunity to respond to the Lord's confrontation of his sin with repentance. And how does Adam respond? Well, we, we all know that if we look at verse 12, his response is to God the woman that you gave to me she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it right this is a cowardly response from Adam he basically says yeah I ate it but it wasn't my fault right it, it was it was because Eve gave me the fruit that I decided to go ahead and I was going to eat this and God replies to him and he says Uh, what is it that you have done? (laughs) He looks to the woman and says, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In both of these responses, both Adam and Eve, they are pushing the blame from themselves towards someone else. Adam does it it by saying it it was Eve's fault. And Eve looks at it and says, the serpent came and deceived me and I ate of it. And, And so within this, then we see God respond in verse 14 he speaks to the serpent and he says, Because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, Intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you intended, or you listened to your wife about the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. So within God's response to their actions, we get to see three consequences, maybe four consequences uh, from Adam and Eve and the serpent's rebellion against him. So first, recognize the serpent is getting a consequence because of his role within sin. So first, the, the serpent is one that is going to crawl on its belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, I think that is a pretty awesome way to respond to your adversary here, right? Basically saying, God's saying to the serpent, go ahead and eat some dust. Uh, but most importantly, what we see in the consequences of his actions is what we find in verse 15, that there's going to be hostility between the serpent and between the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. Now, this is really important because this is going to play a role in the rest of what we read through Genesis and the rest of what we read in the Bible. What we find out right from the gate is because of sin, there are going to be a people who are aligned with the serpent and a people who are aligned with the woman. And now, within those offspring, we are going to have those that represent the serpent, those that do not belong to God, and the woman, those who do belong to God. And within this, we see in the later half of verse 15, this prophecy where it said, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Scholars call this the Proto-Evangelium, and with that fancy word, what that means is basically that this is the the prototype of the gospel, um, that there is a, a precursor of the gospel story that's coming here. So the war that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent uh, is going to be ultimately the... The war that exists between the people of God and the people and those, the enemies of God, will come to see its fruition when the one comes who will be, as Kevin DeYoung infamously calls it, the snake crusher. And the snake will go ahead and strike the heel of that individual. And I'm going to go ahead and make this very good case that this is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So right off the bat, when we see in the consequences of sin, the curse of sin, we also see a promise of blessing. Then we get to look at how God responds to Eve, and particularly, he highlights in verse 16 the consequences of her actions. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. So there are particularly two consequences that we see with uh, the woman. First is the, the intensification of labor pain. Uh, and so, ladies, I'm sure all of you can go ahead and say, yes, that is a very intense experience. From what I've witnessed, it is a very intense experience. Uh, it, it says that you will bear children with painful effort. So up to this point, we can assume that prior to the fall that, that childbearing was not as a, as painful as it is now, uh, and yet while we see within the actual like act of giving birth, there's both great a great beauty and a great pain. Right, the the beauty being the fact that life is coming uh, from the woman, and then also the pain of that is the pain that comes in childbearing. Uh, so she has her own particular consequence, and her consequence also relates to her relationship with her husband. The second half of that verse, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So part of the consequence of sin, God has created us equal in his image in Genesis 1 and 2. We are in his image, in his likeness. He's created us distinct male and female. And he has created Adam with the role of exercising dominion. And according to Genesis 2, that Eve was going to be his helpmate. Okay, and now in Genesis 3, because sin has entered into the equation, we see that part of this created order, while there's been equality and image, distinction of role already established in Genesis 1 and 2, the distinction and the desire is then emphasized again in Genesis 3. So the desire for Eve is to rule over her husband, that's how the ESV puts it at least, and then uh, it says, "Yet he will rule over you." Okay, so there is no longer this cooperative uh, working together, where there's a distinction of roles yet equality and image. Now there is a sense in which the woman wants to rule over her husband in a way that goes against God's created order. Um, so that's the the consequences for Eve, and then the consequences for Adam in verse seventeen. Uh, obviously, he is connected to what, he, what God has just spoken to Eve. Uh, but it says that because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree, which I commanded you not to eat from, it says that there's going to be curse for the ground. Okay, So the cursing of the ground. That means that Adam is going to have to labor the days of his life to work, to gain food, to eat of the substance of what God has created for him. And how God has exercised dominion through him. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. And then here we see, again, the reintroduction of that, that warning that was in Genesis 2, highlighted again in Genesis 3, the fact that there's going to be death for them. You're going to return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust and you will return to dust. Just as God had really strong words for the serpent in verse 15 and even in verse 14, God has really strong words for Adam here in verses 17 through 19. For you were taken from the dust and you're going to return to the dust. Now, you know, some people have asked the question of, okay, why, uh, you know, why in Genesis 2 did God say that on that day they would certainly die? Why is there in the rest of Genesis 3 this way where God puts together uh, these fig leaves to give to Adam and Eve so that they can then go walk with coverings. Now, it's absolutely true. God could have, without a doubt, gone ahead and totally, utterly abolished Adam, Eve, and the serpent on that day. He could have just put all of creation to a stop, to a halt. He could have destroyed everything right then and there. But what we see is a carrying out of God's mercy and how he executes the promise of judgment in the death of humans. So while we were deserving of being totally obliterated on the spot, God in his mercy provides for Adam and Eve and he stays faithful to his, to his, pr- his promise and command. He's, they're, they're going to die, their end is death, But it's a slow, painful death that they are going to die. They'll no longer live, as we'll see through the rest of Genesis, to be uh, very old. There will be a day in which they will cease to exist. So while some people will say, oh, well, God, you know, should have done this, should have done that. I'm just going to go ahead and let the Bible speak as it speaks and say, God was faithful to execute his justice and judgment in a way that continued to show his character, which was holiness and in mercy. So God did indeed get to that. And so with the with that, I, I'm going to come to basically landing in on this line of thinking for this particular episode, looking at it and seeing, okay, we're already coming up to the end of our time. Um, I want to highlight what we believe about the roles of men and women for our church. Uh, so... We see within Genesis 1 and 2 that God has created men and women equal in image, that we are equally image bearers of God, and he has created us with distinct roles. Adam was given the original task of having dominion, exercising authority, and working over the land, and then Eve was created from Adam in order to be his helpmate. You you can see that in Genesis uh, 2. Uh, Particularly in verses 15 all the way through to 25. Uh, While God has created us equal, He has given us distinction in our roles. And those things are meant to be uh, celebrated within those that hold to the Christian faith. Uh, Within our world right now, people do not want to hold the distinct way that God creates men and women. Uh, with celebration. In fact, what they want to tell you is that if there's not an equality across the board, then there is no sense of value whatsoever. And we just do not see that carried out within Scripture. Uh, we are imposing a worldview upon Scripture when we say that it's saying something that it's not saying. Uh, so s- Scripture very clearly highlights that men and women, while we're created with equality and image and distinction of role— that we both have value in God's sight. It doesn't say anything less than that. And to do to put the words in the mouth of Scripture to say that it, it's saying that men are more valued or women are undervalued, uh, would just be unfair. Now, I think it's all. I think it, because of the fall, that it's fair for us to say that at least the way that we look upon the distinctions of men and women may be highlighted in unfair fashion. And maybe that's been a distortion, but that distortion ultimately comes down to what? It comes down to sin. So within this, um, we see that, you know, that men and women are created equal in image, but with distinction of role. Um, and because of sin, those, those battles that we have, the battle to feel like we need more value, the battle to feel like we need more of a, a role to play, um, they enter into all sorts of relationships. With that, that's relationships in the church, uh, with who can serve and what capacity, whether that's relationships within the home, right? Maybe men want to be more passive within the home and women want to have more leadership in the home. Maybe, maybe all of those things play out in those different ways. But nonetheless, I think that we need to recognize that God's created order was creating humans equally in His image, in His likeness, distinction of roles, and that those things are good, and we should celebrate those as good. And so that's why at our church, we hold to what is called a complementarian uh, position, which basically means this, that God has created men and e- women equal with complementary distinct roles that work together for their good and for his glory. Now, uh, to get to the highlight of the the consequences of sin and the actions of Adam and Eve with Within our discussion, a lot of people are asking this question, which is basically, why didn't Adam do anything more? And I think that can be a helpful question. Um, I've often wondered, like, hey, Adam, why didn't you do this? (laughs) What were you thinking here? Um, But here's the thing. Sin does that to us. Sin makes us think that we could have done maybe better in the conversation, Uh, and the reality is, is that if all of us were put in Adam and Eve's position, we could go through a lot of what-ifs, but the reality is, is that probably we would have done the same thing. And because of that, I think that it's important that we, we look at this and we say, Okay, knowing this side of the cross, this side of the biblical narrative, that this is what happened, that we must at least come to grips with the reality of our sin. Our sin is inherited from Adam, and in Adam, we are just like Adam. <laughs> so w- the Bible, when it says that we're dead in our sins and trespasses, I think it, it would be prideful of us to think that we could go beyond uh, any capacity to be s- uh, as sinful than that of Adam or Eve. We, we were just in those shoes, so we, we could have very well just done the same thing. Now, should he have spoken up? Yes. Should he have defended what God said? Yes. Should he have protected Eve better? Yes. Now, we learn from this situation that men are called to lead their families, to sacrifice for their wives, and to protect those that are under their lead. Uh, And many men fail in this facet. And many women also don't allow men to have the opportunity to do so. And there are consequences that come right from Genesis 3, 14, all the way through to verse 19, that we get to see played out in everyday life. So those consequences are still ravaging us today, but thanks be to God that we have the gospel of Christ that helps us and empowers us so that we can live for God's glory, even despite the natural consequences of our sin. And I think that the reformers summed this up well, they have a... a, A Latin phrase, and if you know Latin, I'm sorry if this sounds horrible, but it's simil et peccator justice, which means that we are simultaneously sinners and yet justified. So, by the gospel, by the work of Christ, when we repent of our sin, place our faith in Him, we are simultaneously justified. We stand rightly before God, and yet on this side of heaven, still working out our sinfulness so that we can be glorified in God we're working through the process of sanctification so could Adam have done more yeah now why is it that Adam didn't uh, be part of this conversation in Eve that's just a really wonderful question to ask the Lord when we get to heaven Um, I think that it's particularly interesting and it may show us a framework of deception that will play itself out in the rest of the Bible and even play itself out in the rest of our relationships Uh, that is here in Genesis 3, that God would happen to go to someone over someone else, or that Satan would go to someone over someone else to try to deceive them, uh, to work within them, to bring about his purposes and thwart the purposes of God. Uh, Well, there's so much more to say. Um, I'm going to do another episode here soon uh, to go through at least after Genesis 4, but I think this is a great spot to begin, looking particularly at Genesis 1 through 3, and seeing how God was working in creation and how he is at work within our relationships with each other for his glory. Uh, I pray that God would continue to give us a heart to know his word, to want his word, to want to digest his word, to soak in it, and to live it out for his glory. Uh, Guys, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for you listening to this podcast. I hope that this is a great help to you. And uh, look forward to more discussions to come. In all of this, let's remember the promises of God in Scripture as we hear uh, from Hebrews chapter 6 that we indeed have this hope, an anchor for our soul, which is found in Christ Jesus, who has sympathized with us in every situation of life. He is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, because he enters in our place. So remember the hope of Christ this week. Remember the promises of God. And I look forward to diving into more conversations around our Bible reading plan together.